Our uh, first sermon reading today comes from Mark chapter 8, 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Our next reading is from uh, Mark 15. Uh, This is 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the night hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Our next reading is from Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Um, So we are concluding our study of the Gospel of Mark, centering on the series of nameless women. Um, And the point I have been making is that Mark has included this in his gospel uh, specifically to make some very profound points. Um, If we look at the purpose of Mark as a whole, the purpose of Mark's gospel is, I think, to redefine the kingdom of God and the Messiah by presenting Jesus as a different kind of king and his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. Mark wants to tell us that something new is here. In order to make these points, Mark paints a picture of what I've been calling a a backwards, upside-down kingdom in order to uh, really illustrate the truly revolutionary nature of Jesus' kingdom. Now, as part of this strategy, uh, he takes special care to elevate different marginalized groups of the ancient world, Um, and that also includes women. He portrays them with dignity and honor that would have been unknown at the time. And one of the things that I've been trying to uh, do in this, uh, in this sermon series is to show how he purposely juxtaposes these stories of the nameless women uh, along with uh, stories of the disciples. And he does this to highlight key aspects of the true nature of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Uh, and the crazy thing about Mark's gospel is that the nameless women come across as ideal disciples in a way that the actual 12 disciples that we know never really do. Now, 
At several key points in Mark's gospel, Mark examines the question of the identity of Jesus. Who exactly is this man, Jesus? The question of Jesus' identity leads to Mark's larger question. How can someone who has been crucified be the long-awaited Messiah? Crucifixion was a shameful, dishonorable death of a failed revolutionary. So why should anyone follow a crucified revolutionary? And remember, people were very familiar with crucifixion. This wasn't something abstract. This wasn't something that people wore uh, around their necks, saw necklaces the way we do. This was something very real and very visceral to these people. Now today, we will look at this dramatic, amazing story at the woman of Bethany to see what her story tells us about Jesus' identity. However, before we do that, I want us to look at a couple of other stories that also center on Jesus' identity. Uh, Mark begins his gospel with the statement that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. However, through most of the book of Mark, Jesus goes to great lengths to keep this information a secret. We saw that in the passage we read today. Um, that's called the, sometimes known as the Messianic secret. Now, as people stand in awe of his healings and teachings, Jesus frequently warns them to stay quiet. And this failure to establish Jesus' identity makes him in some ways mysterious and leads people to speculate as to who he is. And it's interesting that, at least in the first half of the book, the only group that actually knows who Jesus is with any confidence are the demons. Uh, when de Jesus will exercise demons, they call him correctly uh, by his titles. And this leads to an important question, and I think it's the question that Mark wants us to ask. Because once again, Mark is about establishing Jesus' identity. If the demons are correct about Jesus, why do they still oppose de Jesus? The answer, of course, is that faith is not just a matter of believing correct factual knowledge. Uh, there's, a great, uh, there's a great verse in the book of James uh, that says, uh, you know, you believe in one God, you do well. Guess what? The demons also believe and they shudder. Faith requires something more than an acknowledgement of a true proposition. And my plan today is to study this issue of identity to try and work out what does it mean to have true faith in Christ? What does it mean to be an ideal follower? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? In other words, if both the demons and the Christians uh, believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, what's the difference between these two groups? Now, in order to do this, we are going to look at a series of confessions about who Jesus is that, have been, that Mark presents throughout his gospel, uh, ending with this story of the woman of Bethany. Now, our first confession is contained in our first scripture reading from Mark 8. We looked at this passage a little last week, and if you remember, I said that Mark 8 is very important. It acts as the turning point of the book of Mark. Uh, it occurs about halfway through the book. Mark's about 16 chapters long. And chapter 8 uh, really is the pivot point, the fulcrum, the, the whole turning point. Before Mark 8, Jesus keeps his identity secret. But afterwards, Jesus is more open about who he is. And that uh, change eventually leads to his death and execution. In this passage uh, in Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? Now, the question's indirect. Jesus is sort of probing here. Uh, and the disciples have been among the people, and they respond with the most common idea that Jesus is another in a, the long line of prophets. Now, 
a prophet would have been a pretty big deal. Remember that until John the Baptist, a prophet had not been heard in Israel in over 400 years. Uh, For those living in this time in Israel, God's word had ceased a long time ago. And along with that, their hopes, questions, and fears had been met with silence. So being a prophet was no small thing. But then Jesus changes his question to a more direct one, asking the disciples who they think he is. And so Peter, acting as a spokesperson for the disciples, responds by answering, you are the Christ. Now, one thing you need to remember, and I've said that before, but we'll repeat it again. uh, The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah. Okay, so Mark started by announcing his work as the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of Jesus Messiah. So here at this key critical turning point in Mark, we have Peter making a confession, proving the very point that Mark is trying to make. That this person, Jesus, is Israel's long-sought Messiah who would at last free Israel from its captors and set the world aright, establishing God's perfect rule and justice for all eternity. Now, when we hear this, if we just stop here, you know, we might just be like, great, this is a high point. Peter's finally got it, you know. Uh, But uh, Jesus then doesn't stop there. He goes on to describe the work of the Messiah in very different terms than what Peter has in mind. And again, this is part of the burden of the book of Mark's gospel. Mark is trying to, he has written his gospel as corrective to the prevailing ideas about who the Messiah was. Now, we looked at this passage last week, but given its importance to the overall message of Mark, it bears repeating. Jesus describes his mission as rejection and death. This is too much for Peter. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. What is Jesus' mission all about if it's just going to end up in failure? Probably that whole rise again in three days sounds so insane it never registers to Peter or any other of the disciples. But after rebuking Peter and and equating him with Satan, Jesus doubles down on his point. His mission is about denial. It's about loss. It's not at all the glorious path to victory that Peter might have imagined. The point I'm trying to make here, though, is that Peter's confession is right. Jesus is the Messiah. He's gotten it right. However, he has also missed something very fundamental. So fundamental is it to Jesus' identity that Jesus labels Peter's thinking as satanic and must rebuke him. Now, we know what happens the next time we have Peter arguing with Jesus. It's about Jesus predicting that when persecution comes, that all the disciples will fall away. And what does Peter do? He emphatically declares, even though they all fall away, I will not. Once again, Peter decides to argue with Jesus. And we know what happens. Jesus is proved right, as Peter famously denies Jesus on three separate occasions. Do you know what Peter's last words are in the Gospel of Mark? I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now earlier... Jesus has told a parable, a story about a sower who scattered seed on rocky soil. The seed that fell on the rocky soil sprung up, but when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root and it withered. Peter, whose name means rock, 
has proven to be like the seed on the rocky soil. He is an early, eager, and passionate follower. But when hardship comes, Peter quickly falls away. And my point is that Peter's confession, though technically correct, proves to be a false one. Peter's words are true, but Peter doesn't understand the content of his words. Jesus rebukes Peter using the same words Jesus uses when he exercises demons. Mark is purposely here portraying Peter's confession as no better than the demons who were also able to correctly identify Jesus. Peter's confession is half true. But what Jesus and Mark wants us to understand is that Peter's confession is also completely false. Now we come to our next confession, the one given by the Roman centurion after the death of Jesus on the cross. Remember, Mark starts his gospel with the statement that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. Peter has confessed Jesus is the Christ in chapter 8. In our passage, the Roman centurion confesses Jesus as Son of God. Now, interestingly, the phrase Son of God doesn't carry the idea of, a di- of divinity that we associated with. Um, you know, just a, 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 some historical background. The Romans actually looked down on cultures that worshipped other peoples as gods. Uh, they saw themselves as superior uh, to, to, to the Eastern religions that would do such things. However, there was sort of a loophole that they kind of came up with for the emperor. Uh, imperial, in imperial propaganda, after the death of an emperor, he was thought to ascend to the heavens and become divine. And his successor, though not divine himself was then referred to as the Son of God. So, for example, you can find coins that say uh, Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. So, Son of God in Rome is not really a divine concept per se. It's a political concept, indicating a claim to supreme earthly power and kingship. Now, there's a problem with the Roman centurion's confession, and it's this. We don't really know in what sense the centurion is making his claim. Often we have been taught that this is like this, you know, positive affirmation by this Gentile. I find that a difficult claim uh, for a couple reasons. Um, His confession occurs immediately after Jesus' death and after a series of mocking statements and actions have been inflicted on Jesus by his tormentors. Uh, Before the centurion's confession, the Roman soldiers had dressed Jesus in a purple cloak. They had crowned him with thorns. They had mockingly saluted him with cries of, of hail, king of the Jews, and then struck him on the head as they knelt before him. Above the cross, there was a sign that described Jesus as king of the Jews. As Jesus was on the cross, people mocked him by shouting at Jesus his own prophecy about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. And after Jesus dies, it could be that the centurion's confession is just the end of a long line of sarcastic insults that have been hurled at Jesus. Jesus has just died. And as the centurion looks at Jesus' lifeless body hanging on the cross, a scene that was probably likely common to a Roman soldier, he hurls one last insult. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The statement uh, is in the past tense. It's actually, uh, he was the son of God. Uh, It actually is missing the word the. Our translations add this here. 
Uh, both of these grammatical points are at odds with uh, how the phrase is used in the rest of the book of Mark. Of course, we the reader know that all these statements that are made in sarcasm and jest are actually true. And uh, all of them, along with the Roman centurion's confession, are part of a dramatic irony Mark is trying to create for the reader. Now, that's one view. Now, a more charitable view is that the Roman centurion, who had seen many men die in such circumstances, maybe perhaps he observed something admirable here. Maybe it's not sarcastic. Maybe he saw something noble in the death of Jesus. Perhaps his statement is not meant in jest, but he's generally moved by Jesus's death for some reason. Uh, the Romans loved a noble death. Uh, you know, if you're a fan of Roman history, uh, the Romans were impressed with such figures as Cato the Younger, who was a Roman nobleman who committed suicide rather than compromise his principles and participate in the desecration of the Roman Republican form of government that he so strongly believed in. He was kind of a national hero in Rome uh, because of the way he died. In either event, the Roman centurion has witnessed Jesus' death and suffering but he doesn't see any chance of hope or victory in this. In his understanding, he's witnessed a failure. Perhaps he joined in mocking the failure, or perhaps he experienced something moving in the failure, but at no point could the centurion understand the events he witnesses anything but a failure. Which means that we have another confession that is technically true, but missing part of the story. Whereas Peter's uh, confession was one of expectation and victory and a dismissal of suffering, the Roman centurion's confession was one of acknowledgement of suffering without the hope of victory. Now, let us look at our sermon text. And let us look at this story of this nameless woman of Bethany and how she contrasts with the confessions of Peter and the Roman centurion. First, we are told that the events of this story take place at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Uh, now, uh, you know, interesting that he includes the detail, Simon the leper. He can't tell us the name of this woman. You know, in another point in Mark, Mark tells us that uh, Simon of Serene carries the cross and then tells us that the name of Simon's two kids for some reason. You know, and, and this is another point I'm trying to make. I don't think Mark left the names out. I think this isn't so much a bug. I think this is a feature. I think Mark is trying to tell us something awesome by doing this. Now, we don't know anything about this Simon other than he's a leper, but of course that's bad enough. Um, now, I shouldn't note, I, I kind of feel compelled to do this, the disease that we call leprosy today, which is more properly called Hansen's disease, is not the leprosy described in the Bible. Now, we aren't really sure what biblical leprosy was. It probably wasn't a specific uh, condition. People didn't categorize uh, things the way we do. Uh, but it seems to be a variety of skin disorders. But the point is that some of the leprosy was ritually unclean, and so they were marginalized. And one thing you didn't do was you certainly didn't eat at their house. However, this is one of many uh, places, one of many instances of Jesus making a statement purposely by associating and dining with various groups that had been marginalized by the official religious establishment. This is part of what Mark's trying to tell us about. This is that backwards, upside down kingdom that he's trying to paint. Now, as Jesus dines, a woman impertinently enters Jesus' presence. Without any explanation or words, she breaks open a container of what the text tells us is pure nard and pours it on Jesus' head. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, and you probably really shouldn't, uh, nard was the essential oil of a flowering plant found only in the Himalayas. Yes, the Himalayas. Remember, this is first century AD Israel. Uh, There weren't like roads and established trade networks and that kind of thing. In fact, here's the crazy thing. The flower that it comes from can only grow in altitudes over 9,800 feet. So, uh, you know, so this was a luxury good. Um, From what I understand, um, I tried to figure out what it actually smelled like, and I couldn't get very much information. Um, From what I can best tell, it smells kind of like a musty lavender. It doesn't sound like great to me, but oh well. Um, now, we are told in the text that the nard was worth 300 denarii, which was about an average person's yearly salary. Uh, likely, this nard was a family heirloom. And if it was used at all, it would have been used in very small amounts. Not so for this woman. Uh, she does not just put a dab on Jesus. She breaks the entire container and pours it all on Jesus's head. The extravagance and wastefulness of this woman's act lead to a strong reaction from the observers. It's not clear who these people are. The text doesn't tell us. It just uses the word they, so it gives us a pronoun without an antecedent, which of course is grammatically wrong. Uh, So we don't know if it's the disciples or not. Uh, But um, it seems likely that it could it is because immediately afterwards we have the story of, of Judas arranging to betray Jesus. It seems that Jesus' acceptance of this woman's act may have been the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. You know, the 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 act the action that pushed him over the edge. Um, now, you know, I, I think the act, reaction here of they, whoever they are, the disciples or whatever, is understandable. I mean, really, um, I probably would have been among them. Uh, Jesus called, but, but of course, Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy. He uh, knows that there are always numerous opportunities to help the poor, and, welc- and they are welcome to take advantage of it any time. Now, while they debate the well- wasteful expense, though, they miss the larger question. What does this action mean? What is the woman doing by pouring it over Jesus' head? Well, it turns out this is actually a highly significant act. In ancient Israel, a king was not crowned. Instead, a king was anointed with oil by a prophet. Uh, In the Old Testament, we have the accounts of the prophet Samuel anointing both Saul and David as king by pouring oil over their heads. The pouring of the oil symbolized that God, acting through the prophet, had set aside the person receiving the oil for special purpose. So here's another fact that's important in understanding this story and what's going on. The Hebrew word messiah or messiah means anointed one. This woman, this nameless woman, has burst into this dining room and acted as a prophet and has anointed Jesus as the Messiah. Again, we see this backwards, upside-down kingdom that Mark is trying to create for us. Jesus is anointed by a woman who takes on the role of a prophet in the house of an unclean leper, not in Jerusalem, but in Bethany. Everything's wrong. And it's different than what we would have expected. Uh, 
It's not at all how the kingdom should look. Yet Mark is showing us that this is exactly how Christ's kingdom operates. Anointed not by the religious elite, but a nameless woman. Not the center of power, but then the home of a leper in Bethany. There is something that is totally bonkers about, there's something else that's totally bonkers about this anointing. As I said, kings were anointed with oil. This woman, though, uses nard. And here's the thing about nard. It was used most commonly as a burial spice. You see, unlike the disciples, this woman does not avoid the necessity of Jesus' death, but rather she anticipates it. She sees clearer than anyone that someone who acts the way that Jesus does, that goes around eating with leopards, that elevates the lowly, that challenges the powerful, there can only be one outcome for someone like that. She embraces that truth of the inevitable sad fate in store for Jesus, and yet also by her act acknowledges that despite knowing the doom that is set before Jesus, he is still the Messiah and King. For the first time, someone in Mark is able to hold both these concepts of Jesus in their head at one time. This woman understands and grasps a truth that the disciple bros show themselves incapable of comprehending on multiple occasions in the book of Mark. This woman proves herself a true prophet. She knows it makes no sense, and yet she embraces it, giving everything she has in this amazing confession of Jesus' identity. Make no mistake about it. What the woman has, Bethany has done is every bit as much of a confession as Peter and the Roman centurion. The only difference is she has gotten it right. Listen to how Jesus describes her, the result of her action. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's about as amazing an affirmation as Jesus gives anyone. Notice also the beauty, the beauty and irony of Mark's telling of the story. Mark tells us the name of the owner of the house, Simon the leper. He tells us the value of the perfume, 300 denarii. However, Mark does not tell us the name of the woman, only that her action will be remembered by, for all time. And like I said, I don't think this is a bug. I think this is a feature. In Jesus' backward, upside-down kingdom, it is the nameless women who will be exalted. The woman of Bethany is the end. And she's the culmination, really, of all of Mark's stories of nameless women. Everyone that we've been talking about the last few weeks, like Peter's mother-in-law, her mission is to serve the Messiah. Like the hemorrhagic woman, she has faith in Jesus, though she knows that his way can only lead to death. Like the Syrophoenician woman, her actions are impertinent, crossing boundaries, so desperate is she to experience Jesus. Like the poor widow, she breaks the container of nard, holding none back and giving it all. Like all the previous nameless women, her story is affirmed by Jesus and told as an example of true discipleship. The disciple bros constantly jockey for power. They fight for their position in the kingdom of God. They are filthful rather than faithful. They see limitation and worry that there is not enough. They hold back rather than give. 
Most importantly, they miss the most important part of Jesus' identity, that he is a king that must suffer and die. It's a paradox that's only grasped by the nameless woman of Bethany. And so radical is this upside-down, backwards kingdom Mark is trying to have us understand that it requires a dying king to give it rise. There's a great story. I'm a big fan of history, so you'll have to indulge me about the famous Macedonian conqueror, Alexander the Great. Alexander wanted to rule the whole world. That had been his dream. And he led a brilliant military campaign across all of the known world at the time. When Alexander reached the Indian Ocean, which was believed to be the end of the world, Alexander knelt down and wept. And he cried because there was no more worlds left to conquer. But in a few short years, he would be dead at the age of 33, possibly poison, possibly by overindulgence. As Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his life? You see, Alexander was king. And he was king because of of the virtue of might. His rule was a victory for power in his own megalomania. But Jesus has done something totally different. He has won a victory for the nameless the marginalized, the exploited, for all those crushed and beaten by history. Jesus has stood with them in solidarity. He has faced the forces of all those that have subjugated humanity, and he has overcome it, not with violence and power and might. Such a victory would be a victory for violence and power and might. That has been done before. Jesus has instead allowed all the allowed himself to be crushed by those forces, allowing them to gather together and do their worst. And then he has overcome them. Alexander could not conquer death, but Jesus has faced the ultimate power of death and he has defeated it. Those who lose their life will save it. Only by facing and conquering death Could Jesus really be Lord and not just another cool uh, historical anecdote like Alexander? Jesus has purposely faced the ultimate evil force and he has shown it to be impotent. This is why Jesus has to be a king who suffers and dies. Only by defeating the ultimate weapons of all history's tyrants and the greatest affliction of all humanity, only by breaking through this cycle of hate and vengeance, and creating a new kind of humanity, a new kind of human, only someone who did this thing could truly rule the world and humanity. What Mark wants us to understand, and what the woman of Bethany shows us, and what all the other nameless women show us, and what Jesus affirms is that to embrace the values of this kingdom, we have to embrace this upside-down, backwards ethic of Jesus. We show ourselves to be true disciples of service, by service, without holding back, by faith, without fear, by impertinently asserting the abundance of the kingdom, and by embracing the mystery of a crucified Lord who conquers the world through love and not power. There is more, though, and it is good news. The woman of Bethany is a story for all of us who are not superstars who are not great speakers or great minds or charismatic or beautiful or anything else the world holds of value. Remember, as she gives her confession, she says not a word. The woman of Bethany is a story for all of us. 
the nameless ones who Jesus affirms and exalts. The woman of Bethany is a story for impertinent women and for all those lepers who society wants to separate. The woman of Bethany is a story that tells us that true confession is most beautifully and convincingly demonstrated in action. The woman of Bethany is a story that should reassure us that we do not have uh, have to have a perfect understanding of exactly how the complex and paradoxical truths of the kingdom work. The woman of Bethany is a story for us who struggle to articulate his faith, our faith, and yet know and feel something beautiful in the story of Christ. If you feel weak and useless and non-consequential, then Mark has good news for you. The upside down, backwards kingdom of God means that you are the real heroes of his story. And that's the story of the nameless woman of Bethany.